0: Welcome to the Battleground, Wisconsin. My name is Matt Rusty and I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action and welcome to another week from Wisconsin. We have our full panel, still uh, safer at home, we could say, uh, for now, right? Uh, Claire, (laughs) Claire Valky. Claire is our healthcare director at uh, Citizen Action. Claire, good to have you.
1: Thank you, good to see you over Zoom.
0: Yes, as always, we get to see. It looks like Claire, we get to see your kitchen. We get to see Robert Craig, our executive director. He's in a room that looks like it's out of the 18th century, but uh, Robert, Robert, good to see you. It's neoclassical. <laughs> it looks great. Uh, it's very <laughs> Dr. Craig, and we're really happy to have you, Robert. Um, obviously, folks, uh, we continue. Uh, to be uh, in our homes, and uh, like a lot of folks, um, in this time of COVID-19, and uh, that is going to be uh, a lot of our our topic for at least at least two sections here, um, folks. We got to talk a little bit about. So let's do an update on, on kind of what's been going on with with COVID-19, uh, both nationally and uh, also in 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 the state. I want to remind folks we record Thursday morning. Um, And so some of the big news nationally, uh, well, this morning, uh, 5.2 million more unemployment claims. And so we're well into over 20 uh, million unemployment claims over the last, uh, well, definitely within the last month since this started. Uh, And I think that means our unemployment uh, figure is uh, over 13 percent, pushing 14 percent. And also uh, Trump this week said he's pulling funding or going to try to pull funding from the WHO. Uh, but, uh, Robert, I'm going to throw it to you for just a quick, quick update. And then Claire also get an update from you on this, but I want to get initial responses around the reality is though, look, we still basically, uh, have, have, uh, no testing, um, and, and, uh, no real ability for people to know that they're going to have treatment covered. And, uh, that is still the fundamental challenge. Robert, your thoughts on where we stand? And then, Claire, I'd like you to uh, give us yours right
2: after. I'll give you the quick top lines from the standpoint of what's critical. Yes, Trump has the authority to cut off funding to, to WHO and do this during a pandemic when the entire southern hemisphere and third world does has much less capacity than we do to deal with this is outrageous and incredibly horrendous <laughs> racial equity issue Bill and Melinda Gates embarrassingly are filling some of the gap uh, but it's still outrageous then he is threatening to reopen the government prematurely and announce something late thursday with his fake commission that includes his daughter and son-in-law and other hacks and so we and this is at a time when we do not have mass testing ramped up there's increasing public consensus that we need mass testing to open up the economy so that we can find all the infections, um, so we can isolate folks and treat them. It's like a more individualized quarantine. We we need to do contract tracing and surveillance. Surveillance sounds like CIA. That's a medical public health term. Uh, In order to figure out where the virus is and to be able to safely open, open up parts of the economy, it won't be back to normal all of a sudden, None of those things are happened. The federal government is acting like it's the 18th century. It has no powers, like the Art of Confederation before the Constitution. But then he flips back and says, uh, he has no power. It's on the governors. It's their fault. And then, oh, I have all the power. I'm the president. Also wrong. And so God, who knows? He switches back and forth each day, and we have a, a, a clown show uh, most afternoons where he hogs the microphone, has fake campaign ads paid for by us and his uh, medical experts stand there stone-faced and try to, try to get through it. Uh, it is just embarrassing for the most capable country in the world, the richest with the greatest health care capacity as far as research and infectious diseases and biomedical capacity, to literally be brought to our knees and to have someone ill-equipped. But let me just say, in concluding, this is a 40-year thing with the right-wing conspiracy. Remember, Reagan called it devolution to take away all federal capacity and power. And a lot of what's happening it has has occurred by disinvestments for a long time and uh, and Trump is just kind of the the ultimate symptom of it and the of course the worst possible leader even to make the best of what we have. But what we have is far less than we should in this crisis. Claire.
1: In my mind, President Trump attacking the World Health Organization and saying that, um, you know, they had a poor response to <laughs> this pandemic is is kind of a pretty clear case of people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones, right? Because, like, whether or not the World Health Organization responded appropriately is a totally moot point when you consider just how abysmally President Trump responded um, to this crisis and, and continues to respond, um, as Robert laid out, um, both erratically and unhelpfully. Uh, so, uh, that, I feel like we probably don't need to say much more on that topic. Um, but, uh, yeah,
2: that,
1: yeah. People who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones.
2: And I would say that puts a burden on the states, which gets us to Wisconsin. Some states, some governors are leading. Others are more divided and are in the middle, which is currently Wisconsin. But for storm clouds in Wisconsin, as far as being able to step up to the challenge.
0: Look, uh, Trump, there's, I I think, um, yeah, Claire, thank you for saying that. Because, like, oh, my, it's it's the narcissism. and, And this just reveals that this is all about him. And he's going after them to get the spotlight off of him. Right. Like it just this week in, in, in his press conferences and just the behavior it's been, Robert, you, I think you said embarrassing. It's just, it's, it's awful. Uh, And it, it is probably one of the most scary aspects of this. And let's be clear. What is happening, what happened in Michigan uh, yesterday, and I think another state where uh, the right is uh, showing up in by the thousands and uh, uh, protesting these uh, shelter-at-home or- orders, um, Trump has started to spur that he's talking, he's sending under things about really trying to get folks to get out and challenge the governors. So I really, um, I think things took a turn uh, this week that are starting to get darker. And I'm 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 increasingly like worried and concerned a little bit about stability issues, and um, because I don't trust Trump um, to like help lead us in a way where he handles the situation, I actually think he's going to inflame the situation and make it worse. Um, And so I'm very concerned, and I'm also just more broadly concerned, Robert. I had this conversation with you the Monday of uh, before the election when the Supreme Court both Supreme Court stepped in essentially and how concerned I was just for you know that I feel like we're moving steps closer towards civil unrest and like where like the the battle within our country is almost bigger than any battle we have with other countries, right like um, and it's that's increasingly becoming disturbing. Um, and just our inability to even have Republicans and Democrats talk to each other. We're going to talk more after the break about what happened in the state this week. There's just—it's even worse. There was at least some discussion that went on at at the congressional level and some back and forth.
2: So, Matt, what you're saying about Trump and his aberrant and unproductive behavior and self-serving, narcissistic behavior is absolutely true. But I just want to point out that none of this would happen without the modern right-wing movement. And what we're seeing with the social unrest wouldn't happen without, if he, having a base, a base that's been developed for a long time. And Fox News, their main media source, is literally switching back and forth. They had said it underplayed the pandemic. Then they had said it was very serious and Trump was leading well. Now they're saying that uh, they're, they switched over and started saying that we don't need social distancing anymore. So. This is a very dangerous situation because there is a whole right-wing movement he's at the head of, not just one man who is unstable and narcissistic. And at the heart of that movement is the lack of empathy, you rightly pointed out in Trump.
0: Claire, I want to give you an opportunity to respond to that.
1: Yeah, the last thing I'll say on that point is um, is that this is a particularly immediately dangerous situation as well because if we allow this narrative to continue, that. Um you know we should we should stop extending these stay at home orders um, that these emergency orders aren't needed anymore. um that that narrative could could really um, take off, and particularly because, you know this is the moment where we've where we've gotten sort of the curve under uh, under control. Um, hopefully, the number of new cases will start to decrease. And people might start thinking, that um you know that these extreme stay-at-home measures aren't aren't needed anymore um but really it's because they're they're working not because they're not needed um and so we need to be vigilant in the defense of the real and appropriate government actions um that that our state should be taking and that the federal government should be taking as well Um, so i i'm worried about uh about that um and appreciate all the work that um, the governor and our allies in the legislature are doing to uh, ensure that our our state can stay safe.
2: And I would just add that um, that puts more burden on the states to fill the gap. We can't control Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell. And so some states like are stepping up, some governors like uh, Andrew Cuomo, but also Republicans like Mike DeWine or uh, the governor of Illinois, Pritzker, is stepping up. A lot of others, even going to interstate compacts, we need to step up in the same way. And that's what we're going to talk about soon. Uh, Wisconsin is not stepping up as it needs to to fill the gap left by a, a completely irresponsible and federal government that still doesn't have a plan. And with that,
0: we are going to head towards a break. Again, you're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin, where Citizen Action you can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Uh, on the back side of the break, we're going to be joined by Representative Marissa Bell Cabrera and Representative Jonathan Brostoff uh, to talk about what the state's response has been and their role in it. We will be right back after these messages. Welcome back, Battleground, Wisconsin. We are talking about COVID 19. We just spent the first segment talking about uh, the federal response, what's been happening nationally, globally some of the things this week, but uh, we want to turn in this segment, talk about the state response, which is absolutely critical. And uh, this week legislation moved uh, both through the assembly and the Senate. And uh, we are joined by state representative Bel Cabrera and state representative Jonathan Brostoff, uh, representative Cabrera. Thank you for joining us.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: Likewise, uh, representative Brostoff, uh, thank you for joining us.
4: Yeah, thanks for having us. appreciate the work you do.
0: Absolutely. And so the reason we have both of you on is uh, the legislation that moved uh, through the legislature this week uh, basically passed, uh, was bipartisan, and you were the two uh, legislators who voted against it. And we would argue for very good reason. We tend to think that uh, that this uh, bill was severely lacking, but uh, Representative Cabrera, I want to give you the first uh, shot here, just... Tell, tell our listeners, first of all, why it was so important, why both of you felt it was so important uh, to to oppose this legislation.
3: I think that the main reason that a lot of folks are um, scared and worried is not just for the fear of con- uh, contracting the virus, but also because uh, the stay-at-home order impacts their lives in the sense that some folks are not allowed to work anymore because the, uh, their employers are considered non-essential businesses and other folks are being forced to work because their employers are considered essential businesses. And so the folks who are without income now are concerned about how are they going to survive and pay for their, their rent or mortgage or basic living expenses while they're required to stay home in order to prevent the spread of the virus. Meanwhile, the folks who are considered essential workers are not receiving the proper protection, uh, personal protection equipment. Um, They're taking very high risk of continuing to work and um, possibly being exposed to the virus and as well as their families when they go home. And that that is something that for me, I personally felt that the bare bare minimum that any COVID um, relief package should have included in our state are the, uh, the basic personal protection equipment for our essential workers that they get hazard pay for the increased risk that they are taking, that they have um, personal sick time, that they have their full healthcare coverage is is there for in the event that they are infected. And uh, again, uh, there there should have been some type of funding to allow for. Um, the folks that are required to stay home
0: to to be able to make ends meet. Representative Brastoff, uh, your thoughts, uh, your reasons for opposing? Yeah,
4: I completely echo the sentiments of my colleague and friend Representative Cabrera. I think that's kind of hitting the nail on the head. And you know, this is a situation where we've been put, uh, you know, we've we've kind of been held hostage by political terrorists who would use this as a way to further their means. We saw that with the election where the Republicans would basically make people choose between their life and the safety of their community and and their, and their own safety and their ability to participate in, in voting. And they did this because it's the logical extension of their voter suppression tactics. They also refused to do anything on this until, um, you know, until the vote, until this bill came upon us, which was, you know, way too late as far as the unemployment insurance and all these other aspects of it. And then when we finally did get it, they put in all these really bad aspects to it, such as attacking our nurses and our uh, healthcare workers who not only shouldn't be diminished and minimized now, but we should really be celebrating their heroics and we should be helping them out even more. Um, And on top of that, they... Uh, went after our emergency workers, making sure that they couldn't properly access their benefits when this is all said and done. And it, it's just, and, and on top of that, they also told us this is the old, we're only going to get one crack at this. You're going to have one shot to act on a bill. We're not coming back when truly a situation of this nature demands that we should be revisiting it multiple times. We need to check up next week and see what's going on and things might have gotten better they might have gotten worse we need to adjust resource allocation and legislation in order to reflect that but sadly um that wasn't you know we we didn't see that whatsoever yesterday and so um i think to me the only responsible thing to do was to say this is not good enough and there's all these bad aspects who we need to come back we need to take a serious crack at this and so um i was proud to have a colleague like Resident Cabrera who shares my my views on that, but this is nowhere near good enough, and this is such a serious situation that we have to we have to get it right, not just get it, uh, you know, to give cover to the Republicans.
3: Right, and, and that is actually something that I I, I was uh, very prominent in my foremind is uh, the fact that uh, number one, they waited so long to even uh, convene for to address this very crisis that is worldwide, Um, but also it's just the fact that uh, this is what we came up with and it doesn't go nearly as far and there's literally no reason that was provided for that. Uh, We are in the driver's seat here. We are the ones who um, draw out this legislation and there was no reason for us to say that this was the best that we could come up with at this time. That is absolutely
2: well, incorrect. I want to applaud both of you for this. Uh, it reminds me of the only two votes in the legislature of the Gulf of Tonkin resolution, where there are only two no votes, two U.S. senators, and one of them, Wayne Morris from Oregon, uh, said everyone would live to regret it. So we need some people who will stand up. And, you know, as we've are been saying, you can't do anything unless you get eventually everyone tested and treated, and we can we can trace all of the contacts. And that won't happen without free testing and treatment in our healthcare system, with all of the co-pays, deductibles, and co-insurance. Uh, national research shows as many as 70 percent, roughly, may avoid being tested or treated because they because they literally cannot afford giant medical bills. And Governor Evers did take one step where he was going to, for, for insurance the state could regulate, he was going to mandate uh, no coinsurance and no um, and, and, uh, and also no um, copays for treatment of COVID-19. He didn't do deductibles, which he should have, and they wouldn't even do that. You just ended up with testing. And there's a huge loophole, all the uninsured people, which we think is over 400,000 with all the mass layoffs. But I want to ask you a tactical question. I talked off the record to a number of legislators who voted yes, and I uh, had some conversation with the governor's office. Don't want to overstate that, but some. And there was this fear that if Robin Voss was offended uh, and you, you know, kind of tweaked the tail of the tiger, that not only would you not get any relief and be blamed for that, but in addition, he would ta- he, they would move to take away the governor's emergency powers and make the situation worse. So there was a real operating from two levels of fear. Fear of what the Republicans would do if you did what Nancy Pelosi did and said, um, we're not passing this bill until certain things are in there, right? Uh, You could have done that with the governor's veto. and, uh, And fear of what the Republican reaction would be, and therefore this was the best thing we were going to get. So I want to get, since you were the two that were willing to stand up, because I doubt any rational person could see this as adequate under the situation. Uh, and and no rational person actually thinks they're coming back anytime soon. Uh, if they, if the situation could have been worse if we didn't pass it and that, that acting in this kind of fear was the pragmatic move, I guess. I'm wondering your reactions to that.
3: Well, I would say that, um, There was a certain level of apprehension with regard to that, but nonetheless, uh, in in my opinion, we we are all elected to represent a number of people in our district, and our job is to advocate for them, and uh, we could have simply just really, as it happened at the federal level, when um, it was sort of initially blamed on Democrats for blocking aid, once it was explained, here's the reason why because it wasn't actually providing help to the people that need the help, Um, public sentiment immediately changed. Uh, And so that's the thing that I felt like we could have done here as well. Um, Also, I don't believe in operating from a position of fear. We still have to move forward and do our jobs. And it it, it really, if you think about it, this bill doesn't actually provide um, any state funding. There was no appropriation made. It was literally a bill that only Uh, was brought forward in order to allow access to receive the federal assistance. So in other words, if there was no federal assistance, there would be no state assistance right now. So that just goes to show where um, folks on the uh, other side of the aisle are coming from. And and to me, it, it was very blatantly clear how little regard they have for the people of Wisconsin when they force thousands of people to go to vote on election day. Um, And and so I think part of many of the folks that voted, um, Democrats in particular, who voted in favor of this bill is because they seem to think that at some point, um, the the Republicans are going to feel that we need to meet again. And and that presumes that they're going to suddenly care about the people of Wisconsin when if they show that on Election Day, they don't have any regard for the lives of the people in this state. Why would they suddenly decide now we need to come back because there's some things that we didn't include in our first package?
0: So, with that, we got to take a break. On the backside, we're going to get uh, Representative Brostoff's response to that excellent question. You're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin, where Citizen Action, you can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. We need to hear from Representative Brostoff uh, in response to a question about, was this really the best we could do? Was this uh, the best that Democrats uh, could get, Uh, that there was supposedly some sort of potential threat to Eber's power? Representative Brostoff, your response.
4: Thank you. I, I echo the sentiments of Representative Cabrera, especially the idea of not negotiating out of fear. And... You know, tactically I couldn't disagree with that sentiment more. Matter of fact, we literally have the governor's office with Evers in there, with bold leadership from the top. We absolutely positively from the jump should be getting more from day one. And Robin Voss behaves like a political terrorist who would risk the lives of innocent people to get his way. He is a bully. And if you acquiesce to that sort of behavior, they're just going to be, re, you know, they're going to think that that's cool, that that's the way to do it. Yeah, I mean, We have the governor's office. He can lead from the very t- He's the executive of the state. And if he sets the bar high and says, this is what's acceptable. Do your job, legislature. Do your job, Robin Voss, Republicans. And we need people getting help now. That would be one thing. But to just say, well, we're gonna give it up to you know Fitzgerald and Robin Boss, because they really run the state. We're scared of them if they don't come to the table. Nah. First off, it's incorrect even because Donald Trump needs to win Wisconsin. It's not a coincidence we got two point three billion dollars coming here. He wants to buy people off. He's trying to buy an election. That's why Wisconsin's getting the hookup. So they want that money coming through. We have the leverage. That's not a coincidence. Number two. Anytime you acquiesce to a bully terrorist like Robin Voss, it's going to embolden a bully terrorist like Robin Voss. They think it's good, you know, th- they think that's the way to do things if you're going to like, you know, keep it going. And we should have put the pressure to them. And by the way, they would have, ca- you know, I-, I completely disagree. Oh, he's going to get his little white male frail eagle, fra- you know, fragile ego hurt and, you know, blah, 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 blah. I don't give a damn about that. That's how governing works. It's about one person's personality. That's ridiculous, and that's a silly way to govern. And that also doesn't realize the fact that we have the governor's office. We have the top executive. We have the executive of the state. He is a Democrat. He believes in this stuff. Uh, You know, I would have liked to see stronger and more effective leadership from Evers from the jump on this. And I'd have liked to see him step it up and set the bar high right away and be in those negotiating tables. And get to what we, I, I see we got more questions coming up, but you know, this is something I could go on for in days. And, and Marissa Bell and I have had many conversations about this sort of thing behind closed doors tactically, but you know, you're getting to see a little bit of that spill out here, but it's something I'm pissed about, yes.
3: Right. And also because it sets a really bad precedent. They already are signaling that um, they want Wisconsin to reopen, that they want business to go back to normal again. Which right.
2: We are not in
3: any way um, in the position to do that because even if uh, we see uh, data now that is showing that we are possibly getting to the to the where we want to be, uh, we still haven't accounted for what the impact, the full impact of folks that went and voted in person during election day is. Uh, we are still within that window of where symptoms will start to manifest. And so that is something that we definitely need to factor in as far as um, deciding to uh, reopen the economy as um, they, their tagline is.
4: Well, and we also don't even have, because of the failures at the federal level and because of, you know, the, the complete lack of leadership and their corruption and ineptitude, we still don't have the testing. So we don't really know what's going on yet.
3: Exactly, which is one of the reasons why I kept pushing for um, the full healthcare coverage, not just testing, because a lot of people are not getting access to these tests. So um, how is that even a, a, a benefit where you're saying your testing will be free? Um, I guess if you're lucky enough to have a test be perform- done on you. Most um, of the people who go are turned away and said you need to show symptoms. And even the people who have symptoms who show up, well, they're t- t- turned away saying you're not sick enough yet. So you still aren't getting tested. So that that's really kind of, uh, smoke and mirror uh, sort of provision that makes you makes it sound like we're doing something, but we're really not. And another really important part of that bill that really uh, pissed me off is because even the, 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 the tiny parts that were positive, are only temporary. They're only um, good up until a certain point, as as whether the current order expires or in some um, provisions it's plus 30 days, plus 60 days thereafter. But it's still just for a few days, so it doesn't even make sense that we're applauding this measure that actually is only temporary and isn't really going to um, provide the, the, the help that people are in dire need of.
4: Yeah, I, I agree more with that. I think that's spot on, and and I mean that's the point too. Is they said we're not going to come back, and these are going to end soon, and we have no idea what it's going to look. Like. You you know that's that's the point. We have to have people in government who believe in governance, and we have to be able to come back to work. But because we're dealing with political terrorists and the Republicans, and we're dealing with you know leadership that acquiesces to them. We're just going to keep seeing the same thing over and over, and it's not a stretch to say this will cost people their lives. Innocent people will die
0: because of this. Claire, Claire I wanted to give you a chance to ask a question.
1: Sure. I think what I'm thinking, um, hearing you two talk, is that there's so much work left to do, uh, and and even Congress came back and passed multiple relief and response bills, and to your point, um, you know, Wisconsin's Republicans and the legislature are signaling that they're not willing to do that, but but we know that we can't stop fighting, and that's what I'm hearing from you. So so my question to you is, do you have any thoughts on where we go from here? Do you have any ideas of, of what you want to do to keep fighting? And if so, what can we do to be supportive? How can we plug into your efforts? Well,
3: I think it's really important that we... Uh, Sort of educate the public on how this bill is lacking um, and explain to them how even if it some things sound good, here's how it's really going to play out. Because I think that unfortunately, even with folks in, in our own caucus, the ways that they're sort of talking about it is almost like it is a win because it's something is better than nothing. Uh, which clearly is true. Some help is better than no help, but those shouldn't be our two options um, to begin with. That's number one. And and so it it is going to take a a public push for the the Republicans to really uh, come back to the table and and provide the uh, substantive help that people are uh, expecting from us.
4: Yeah, I I agree with that. And I would also say that... uh... You know, we need more amplification now. Uh, Claire, directly to your question, what can be done? We need people to get the word out immediately and to say exactly what's going on here. And we need the stories of healthcare workers. We need the stories of other essential, you know, uh, folks who are being affected by this. And and, I mean, we yeah, we need that now, now more than ever. That will be helpful.
3: And even if you look at, it's very interesting because they, their, their last minute amendment was just another uh, uh, twist of the knife to constituents and in particular their own supporters, um, even like first responders who they tend to normally protect, they even took away the little bit of protection that would have been in the, 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 the bill, um, basically setting the standards so high that it was in effect uh, canceling out the benefit of the provision, which was if you are injured, if you happen to contract the virus while um, you know on duty, uh, that you would be, it would be presumed that you would be eligible for workers' compensation. But then they changed it to that you would have to show that you had direct contact with somebody who tested positive, which is a very high standard when you're, for instance, uh, you know, police officer or firefighter that you're constantly coming into contact with folks, how are you to identify which particular person was the one who infected you? That's impossible.
2: There are enough tests. So moving forward, like we have very little time left, uh, what are progressives to do? I feel like we all have a responsibility. Right, it seems like we need to light a fire under everyone in state government to do what's necessary right now, that this is like having World War II, and was using the analogy, and deciding, well, you know, we really won't do much right now. We have fiscal restraints and we'll go home for the, for the summer. I mean, that's what this is like. Well, no, I agree. I think
4: we need everyone to really just put the pressure on. And the fact that people are home now gives a unique opportunity for everyone to get on their phones, to make a video and say, Hey, what the heck, you know, what's going on in Wisconsin, what's happening. We need help now. And by the way, I, you know, just the fact that we're only getting this, you know, the federal, you know, accessing some of the federal aid on this. uh, Well, and actually, Robert, there's one more point to this that you'll appreciate. The governor is going to have a significant amount of discretion about how that federal aid is spent under their administration, because they're the, the ones who administer it. Um, also making sure that that's done in the best way possible and that there's there's pressure in that manner. So I would say those are the two things you can do, but make videos, let people know what's going on, mobilize online. The fact that we can't meet in person, do these massive protests, doesn't mean we're done. We have to adapt and organize in ways that are appropriate for
0: the times we're living in.
4: And this is a unique opportunity to do that.
2: Well,
0: with that, we have to wrap up this segment of the battleground Wisconsin. We really want to thank, uh, well, first of all, thank you both for your votes and your leadership, but also, of course, thank you for taking the time to join us today, educate our listeners on uh, why this bill was so in, in, uh, insufficient, and uh, to look forward that we need to continue to keep pressure on our uh, local electeds to, to lead in this absolutely critical time. Thank you very much, both of you. Thank you. With that, we got to take a break here at the Battleground Wisconsin. Again, we're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to the Battleground, Wisconsin, where Citizen Action can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Action w, uh, WI.org. Uh, Obviously want to thank again uh, Representative uh, uh, Cabrera and Representative Brostoff for their leadership and joining us to explain why it's so important we continue to push. Um, and we're going to continue to talk about that topic. Uh, Representative Cabrera mentioned just uh, disproportionately, right, how Uh, a lot of folks are being forced to go out and and, and do this work and um, not have the protections, not maybe be able to afford uh, to get the proper treatment and testing. And the reality is we are seeing this play out. Uh, And for the last uh, couple of weeks now, it has been getting uh, increasing attention about how this epidemic, pandemic, excuse me, uh, is disproportionately impacting particularly the African-American community. Uh, Claire, I want you to um, uh, just Give us uh, your top-line thoughts. I know this is something you wanted uh, to talk about today.
1: Yeah, I think this is really important um, because we've been talking for a long time without any real numbers to back it up, um, referencing the deep racial inequities and disparities in um, who is being affected by and dying from this pandemic pandemic. And for the first time this past week, um, the state of Wisconsin and the Department of Health Services has released um, racial and ethnic data on um, confirmed cases um, and um, deaths related to COVID-19. And unsurprisingly, but devastatingly, it uh, backs up what we have been saying um, specifically around um, how this disease is affecting um, black residents of the state of Wisconsin, uh, especially uh, compared to white residents of the state. And so as of uh, the 15th, so we record on the 16th on Thursday, so these are um, accurate as of as of Wednesday, the 15th. Um, the percent of cases in Wisconsin um, of COVID-19, uh, uh, 25% of those cases were um, uh, from uh, uh, black residents of the state. Uh, 51% were from white residents. Um, and to put this in context, um, I, I went to the U.S. Census's website to just see what the most latest estimates of our um population demographics are. Um, and the US Census estimates that um, 6.7% of uh, Wisconsin residents are of black or African American uh, background. And so uh, that means that this this disparity is uh, is huge. Um, and that is a even further um, compounded, I, I'll say by the fact that 39% of deaths in Wisconsin related to COVID-19 are from the state's black residents and 57% are from white residents. Um, and so, so that disparity increases um, even further when we talk about um, who's paying the ultimate, um, the ultimate cost, the ultimate price of this uh, pandemic. And so we're seeing a disparity within a disparity. Um, it's, it's really it's really unconscionable um, that that our state's leaders are not taking this more seriously um, and allowing this disparity uh, to continue. Um, I'm glad that the state is finally being um, being transparent uh, with this with this data um, but now that we have it, they have a moral obligation, a moral imperative to do something about it.
2: And the key point here – thanks for laying that out, Claire – it's another reason to be against this relief package and be on record against it. Nothing extra was done, and it's a combination of structural racism, poverty, people's living conditions, right, and then it's literally they have more health conditions, folks of color, right, uh, literal and so and that's it. That's affect affects COVID nineteen. If you have those health conditions, then you're more likely it's more likely you're more likely to be infected, more like certainly more likely to be deadly. And then it is access to healthcare and the cost of healthcare. The uninsured rate for African Americans is more than double the white rate in Wisconsin, white, white rate in Wisconsin. and the uh, Latino and uh, Native American. Uh, disparities, which I'm not sure if they're in the data for COVID-19, Claire, but in terms of uninsured rate is even worse than that. And that's why you need to do what we're suggesting, right? You need to expand care to everyone who's uninsured. uh, Because by the way, the uh, Trump administration won't even open up the Affordable Care Act to folks who, who were already uninsured when this started. If you've just been laid off, you can sign up and then it's full of copays and deductibles, which is going to deter people if it's private insurance. So we need to ban all the copays and deductibles and cost sharing for caring and treatment. And we need to open up batch care to everyone's uninsured. And then we need to do massive testing and contract tracing. And then we can figure out where the virus is. By the way, these numbers are all happening with us not even knowing what the virus is. They're probably much worse. I'm hearing reports from people around the state. That healthcare facilities are suppressing COVID nineteen positive tests for their workers uh, simply because they don't want the bad publicity. Uh, for example, so it, even with with testing, there is dramatic underreporting. Another reason we can't open up without doing what we need to do here. Claire,
0: one of the things that I think uh, actually is probably the next layer in this research that, you know is who, who, what's the percentage of folks who are being tested? I think we're gonna find that African Americans are a very low percentage of the testing uh, relative to what you just mentioned, the deaths. And if you don't have access to healthcare, structural racism, And I think there's structural racism. We know, what the the hell am I saying? We know there's structural racism within the medical profession. And I think you're increasingly, uh, folks don't get tested. I think you're seeing racism probably even in the testing. I would love to see numbers on that because I'm convinced that that is one of the major problems that's going on here. It's both the access, uh, the concern, uh, do I have access to the testing? Could I pay for it if I had it? And even if I show up, I'm more likely to be turned away or not given a test because I'm black, and I'm I'm convinced that 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 is also going on because we hear about it all the time about sort of that medical racism that's going on, and I'm hoping right that that's something that is people are being very acutely aware of right now, uh, and it's not happening. But I we know that there's these structural issues happen, so I, I'd love to see the numbers on what percentage of folks. Uh, what is the ethnic, uh, race of folks who are actually getting the test? Claire?
1: Yeah. So unfortunately that's not data that DHS, um, I don't know if they have it and haven't it released it or just are not tracking it. I don't know. Um, but what I'll add to that is, I mean, if we're talking about structural systemic racism and how, um, and how it affects health and healthcare, um, there are so many different layers to that, right? So you identified uh, sort of internal biases um, that, can lead to um, sort of racist differences in how um, providers uh, handle uh, caring for different types of patients, but we should also be talking about how our for private health care system allows healthcare provider systems, um, like hospital networks and clinic networks, to uh, incentivizes them to divest from. Um, low-income communities and from communities of color at the same time as they are investing in wealthier communities and whiter communities, right? And so we saw this in, for example, is it Ascension that um, that has uh, that runs St. Joseph's Hospital uh, and their historic efforts to close St. Joseph's Hospital in Milwaukee, which is one of the last remaining um, healthcare provider um, institutions in a historically uh, um, African American community in Milwaukee at the exact same time as trying to build new fancy clinics in the suburban communities around Milwaukee, um, because because there's just more money in it, um, and and it just the further and further back you step, you see um, just how entrenched our healthcare, our for-profit healthcare system is in. In these systems that um, perpetuate these deep racist and racial um, inequalities inequities, disparities, uh, it's, it's horrifying. And and so then we get to a system, a, a situation like this where we have a pandemic, and and all of this, the, the, just all these things converge in this in this confluence of bad outcomes. I'm really trying to not swear, <laughs> um, and and we end up in this situation where where people are dying at at much yeah. greater rates because of systemic racism in our for-profit Ro- healthcare system.
0: Robert, you get the last comments before we have to wrap it up.
2: And uh, of course, I-, I think Claire said it all. We have a moral obligation to take this on, and that means doing more for people at are disadvantage, not less. And that starts with providing universal free treatment and testing, as we're saying, or you'll never get at this and then actually forcing the health systems that have been following the money to the suburbs and away from rural areas to actually do their job here. And so we need a structural intervention. That's the only way you take on racist policy. And this is race, structurally racist policy, but it continues. The legislature helped people in a, in a position to be helped uh, already, higher up, uh, much more than anyone else, and did virtually nothing for people, At the bottom. And they're the ones facing having their their aunts, grandmas and brothers uh, killed off at a much greater rate by this by this pandemic. And it's who's going to die if they uh, reopen the economy early. And with that,
0: we are going to have to wrap up this Battleground Wisconsin podcast. We want to thank Representative Cabrera and Representative Brostoff for joining us. Uh, and uh, telling us more about why uh, they voted so courageously this week. But with that, I want to thank our producer, Brian Woodridge, who makes this uh, show happen every week. And it is uh, difficult and challenging in these times to make it happen, and we appreciate his work for that. And also appreciate our listeners, and we hope you will be back with us next week at the Ground, Wisconsin.